0: When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the Uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the Uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, talking side by side shotguns with author Doug Stewart. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 212. Welcome back to the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. We've got a great conversation coming up with author Doug Stewart in just a moment. Back by popular demand, we're going to do a little Q&A and talk plenty of shotguns with Doug But first, of course, thank you to Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast, all the listeners out there making voluntary contributions in support of the show, helping to keep the Birdshot Podcast coming your way for everybody. And one of the benefits for Patreon supporters is that they are eligible for monthly giveaways. I've got the February winner to announce, which is a one-year subscription to Onyx Elite, which gives you all the benefits of Onyx Hunt, access to land information in all 50 states, and a whole lot more via the Onyx Elite platform. If you weren't fortunate enough to win like Jerome was this month, you can always sign up and use the code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. And with February in the rear view, we've got to preview the March giveaway. We've got a good one this month from another partner on the show, Final Rise. I have got a camo Final Rise Summit Turkey Vest that I'm putting up for grabs in March for the next Patreon monthly giveaway. It is the multi-cam version, everything you love about the Final Rise Vest in camo with a few slight tweaks, including a seat pad and some different pocket setups for turkey hunting I can't wait to try my new Final Rise turkey vest in the spring woods this year. And I will just say that I suspect that not everybody that listens to the show is a turkey hunter. So this will be winner's choice. If the winner of this month's Patreon giveaway is interested in the Final Rise turkey vest, it will be theirs. Otherwise, we've always got Onyx Elite subscription cards available as well. So we'll see what happens there. But anybody signed up for Patreon before the end of March will be eligible for that next giveaway, which will be for the Final Rise Summit Series Turkey Vest. In addition to the giveaways, Patreon supporters get access to bonus content, some exclusive discounts, and of course we set everybody up with some Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right, don't forget to leave a rating review subscribe follow like share the podcast any of those little things that anybody can do out there listening just takes a moment and they all add up they're all helpful to the birdshot podcast so thank you for anyone taking a moment to do that as well if you haven't already and i think that's what i got for updates hope y'all are doing well out there i've been hearing from some listeners that are already getting their dogs back out in the woods Snow-free woods, I might add, which is definitely not the case where I'm at. We got a lot of snow to melt. We probably got a foot last week, but temps have been pretty mild. It's a, it's been a real pleasant winter. It's a good week to be a Minnesota hockey fan if you are, happen to be one. It's the high school state tournament this week, aka the tourney, as we like to call it here in Minnesota. Got that in the office on all week. It's things are heating up. The magic of the tourney is on full display. In fact, there is an overtime game currently in progress. Out in the Birdshot Podcast Studios between the Moorhead Spuds and the Edina Hornets. If you know, you know. But other than that, I am looking forward to getting back out and hopefully shooting some clays very soon with the nicer weather. And as you can tell by the Patreon giveaway this month, spring turkeys right around the corner. That's what I'm looking forward to. But today we are talking shotguns on the Birdshot podcast. Longtime listeners will be familiar with author Doug Stewart, author of a couple of books focused on side-by-side shotguns. We've had Doug on a few times, including pretty recently, late last year. And as I say on the episode, he's backed by popular demand. Heard from a number of people that had specific questions, wanted to get Doug back on. Doug heard a bunch of the same. Talked to some folks at Pheasant Fest as well. And Doug and I had a chance to connect last week and go through some of that Q&A, which is always fun. Love getting questions from the listeners and answering those with a guest along for the ride. It was a fun conversation. And if you're into side-by-side shotguns, double guns, vintage guns, there's going to be something in here that will interest you. So I think with that said, we'll jump right into it and welcome into the conversation and back to the Birdshot podcast. Once again, Doug Stewart. Doug Stewart. All right. I'm ready to go. How about you, buddy? I'm ready. Okay. Welcome back to the Birdshot podcast, my friend Doug Stewart, back by popular demand. And that is uh literally back by popular demand. How are you doing tonight, buddy?
1: Hey, I'm good. I mean, I couldn't ask for more but to be talking about side-by-sides on a Friday night.
0: Yeah. Yeah, right there with you. Friday evening, not much else to do, and we are we're going to be talking lots about upland bird hunting guns and we've got a list of questions that we had dug on recently that was December I believe so not that long ago just late last year and you had you we sort of kept in touch after the episode and I know you were getting sort of pounded with questions and and lots of inquiries and I was as well and I can say that I heard I have heard from a number of folks that's, you got to get Doug back on. And I'm like, you know, he's been, we we get him on once a year, pretty much. We've, We've had him on the podcast, but they wanted, they wanted Doug back. And even as recent as I was in Pheasant Fest at Pheasant Fest a couple of weeks ago in Minneapolis And heard from multiple people there that were saying how much they enjoyed the interviews with you, Doug, and wanted to get you back on. So, of course, thank you once again for joining us, and and we're happy to have you back here.
1: And thank you for having me on, Nick, because I just uh, appreciate you, and I appreciate all the new people entering the uplands and showing this incredible interest and side-by-side shotguns and bringing back a little tradition to our country
0: yeah absolutely so we do have a we got a list of questions that doug sort of accumulated from people asking him and i i've tagged a few on here towards the end we'll see we'll see where we get to um but we're gonna get to those momentarily but what have you been up to anything you've been out shooting shotguns shooting clays or doing anything most of the seasons are pretty much closed you're you're out in colorado right
1: yeah i, I uh we hunted bird season pretty hard and then now, and through the end of March, once every few weeks or a month, I'll take the dogs to a bird farm just okay. to keep them on birds and uh, give me a good excuse to take a hammer gun out and shoot some pen raised birds, you know. Yeah. And now I kind of move into this season where I start buying, selling, and trading some guns. Okay. Gun collecting a little more now that I'm not hunting so much, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty common, you know, this time of year. The days are getting longer now, but when we find ourselves in the depths of winter and the days are short and there's lots of those dark hours where we're looking on Guns International and scrolling around on our phones, trying, you know, lots of time to ponder and pontificate, I think.
1: It is. (laughs) and uh, So I enjoy, I get to enjoy them all year, one way or another. Yeah.
0: Do you shoot a lot of clays or not really?
1: I do not. Okay. Um... I used to, but now I, the time, the money, and to tell you the truth, I get to shooting my guns great just from swinging them and mounting them in my house. Yeah. Um, So I'm not a big believer that sporting clays makes you a better upland bird hunter. So I don't uh, do much of it at all. Okay. Instead, what me and my wife do a couple of times before season is we go out and throw our own clay pigeons. Yeah. I got a little ground one that you step on. And I have her launch them whenever and wherever she wants. And I've got to be just holding my gun with the safety on, gazing off in the distance. And that's how I get good at, you know, sudden bursts of birds. And I make it more like hunting, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, there's, we've talked to shooting instructors and stuff before on the show and talked about how you can sort of tailor and tweak clay shooting to upland bird hunting because out of the box, it's not necessarily always suited to that but it's uh it is interesting and I, and I will say over the past handful of years since i've been doing the show and talking to those wing shooting instructors i have done a lot more um, practice gun mounting and swinging around the basement and stuff at home and that is definitely not without uh, some results i, I think it definitely helps uh, consistency of of gun mount and and that sort of thing. And I I was going to ask you one of the, one of the people that I specifically spoke to after I had you on the last time he recommended, he, he wanted to get you back on and I asked him, what would you want me to ask Doug about? And his main thing was the instinctive wing shooting side of things that, that, you know, shooting at upland birds and how the shotguns and stuff align with that. So, um, uh, yeah, let's just, let's jump off there and then we'll hit your list.
1: Okay. That's perfect. Um, I've been upland bird hunting for 40-some years, and this is what I exclusively do, and that's why I specialize in lightweight upland bird guns. That's what both my books are about. Um, And it is totally different than shooting clay pigeons. I can't believe how many times I go out with guys that are just rock stars out shooting clay pigeons, and they can't hit birds for anything, and they can't figure out how I can and if you really think about it, as I'm walking, my gun is not mounted. And when a bird flushes, I have to stop walking, step forward with my foundation with my left leg, and I have to mount and shoot in a swinging fashion. And this bird comes up slow and gets fast, the exact opposite of a clay pigeon. The clay pigeon starts out fast and glides out there and gets slower, slower, slower. Right. And it doesn't fly like a clay pigeon, obviously. They're fluttering. And a lot of people don't realize that. And they end up shooting behind the birds. They have more of a heads up style shooting, which is more natural with birds because you're trying to use all the peripheral vision to see what direction they're coming from. You're alerted, there's more than one bird. Mm. So I find that in fast instinctive, people seem to curl up more in a ball. They seem to try to get solid footing. They hug their gun gun more, and they have a little bit more heads-up style shooting. Everything they're telling you not to do with clay pigeons, and it's just natural instinct. Yeah. So, therefore, you find your gun needs to be balanced a little bit different. Um, You find out you usually need more drop in the stock than the old fitter told you. You usually find out you need a little shorter stock than they told you. And I just come on to this time after time. And I talked about it in my second book. So you need to take into account it is different. I mean, I'm trying to keep my balance on the side of a hill shooting at chuckers. And they're escaping downhill. And I'm actually twisting and shooting downhill. And that's totally anything different than I'm doing with clay pigeons. And this bird is gaining speed like, like a rocket going downhill. It sure as heck isn't gliding out there getting slower. So my gun does need to be you know faster, yeah. and I do need to be able to mount it quickly, and it just feels so much different. And it can really screw me up if I'm in a rut just shooting clay pigeons mm. with a much heavier gun, and, or I'm standing at a post, you know, shooting driven birds coming in. And so there's a lot of difference there. And um, so I don't think the same gun obviously suits. Um, both sport right and that's what's so neat about like we were talking about earlier like the up, upland uh, gum company with the new rfms is they seem to be geared up more for upland bird hunting and you can actually be you know fitted for one for this purpose maybe a little more open choked, you know the style of stock you want and um so i i think we're tonight we need to make these distinctions these differences because we're about the upland hunting birds. I mean, that's what you're an expert in. We're chasing the quail. We're chasing the grouse species and the, the pheasants and all the different partridges and woodcock and grouse. And that's a different ball game.
0: Yep. Yep. And it's definitely the, uh, of interest to the folks that would be turning into the the birdshot podcast. So that's what uh, that's what we are here to yeah. talk about. So yeah, yeah, good stuff on on instinctive, you know, we could do we have and could do whole episodes on instinctive wing shooting, but I think that was a good premise of sort of the things you're thinking about at a high level when it comes to guns and instinctive wing shooting and just like you say I, th- I think most people would be familiar with it, but that said i i have talked to people even within the last week or two that have been hunting with guns that would fall that i would categorize them much more on the side of a clay's gun a big heavy gun that they they are so just sort of at this point in their hunting and shooting career they're just sort of using one gun to do everything which you know we all, we all start somewhere but as you do this stuff more i think people that's when you start to sort of think about specializing and maybe adding another tool to the, or another golf club to the golf bag, that sort of thing. You know, we, we we have different guns to do different things.
1: And I agree. And um, I understand they want the heavy guns and they're shooting over a hundred rounds and that dampens the recoil, but they're not carrying them like we are for, you know, walking 10, 12 miles in a day and in rugged terrain, they're not doing that at all in a sporting clay course.
0: And you could very, very simply sort of distill it down and just say, you know, a Clay's gun, you are carrying a little, putting it in the rack, waiting to shoot, and then you're picking it up and you're shooting a lot with it. And you could say the Upland gun is the complete opposite. You carry it a lot and you shoot it very little. And those, you know, that's oversimplifying it, but those sort of parameters really, I think, really highlight how the gun is going to look and feel different just by laying that out
1: absolutely and i I want a gun that i don't even have to think about i just jump into motion and i'm like how did i just hit that bird i don't even remember mounting it
0: yeah all right let's kick off the list and one of them you sort of highlighted that and i'm i'm curious because i don't even know if you've had a chance to see one but obviously people they listen to the show and they're they're asking doug the third party what do you think of rfm shotguns have you had a chance to see one in person
1: doug well i've seen them um I don't own one and haven't ordered one yet because I, uh, I'm i kind of past that in my life. I uh, I ordered and had some guns made for me, as you well know. Sure. And now I know what fits me, what I like. And now that I'm an older guy, I really like vintage guns that are old. But the RMF, I think, is what's neat about it from everything. The feedback I've gotten is that they're very affordable and reliable and they're geared up more for these upland bird hunters, which is what we're about. And they can actually get one made to fit for these guys that want to do it. Yep. And I had to do it. And this is the most affordable way to do it. I mean, I had, a, when I had my foxes. People cannot, a lot of people go afford to have a Connecticut fox made for them. Right. And I also had an Arrieta made for me and shoot the RFMs are even cheaper than those. Um, so it's a great option for a guy that's like, I can't go buy these old vintage guns. I'm, I'm six foot five and I need a 15 inch stock and I'm not just an average build. And I know exactly what I want. and I just can't find it. Well, there you go. You can build your dream gun and you can make your own memories with it. There's nothing wrong with that. So it's a good route to go. And, um, everybody should at least try that once. They really should. Yeah.
0: It'll be two years in May that I've been sort of working for Upland Gun Company and, and dealing with RFM shotguns. So it's been been really fun for me. I've talked to tons of customers that listen to the show. And um, it's it's a, specifically on the side-by-side side of things, you know, they do make over-unders as well, which that market is much more saturated. There's lots more options. But as far as new oh. side-by-sides go, offerings tend to be pretty limited and again, that's what we found from, from our customers is just the, the ability to sort of dial in, tweak things the way you want with respect to grip and finishings and aesthetics, and then add on to that stock dimensions, uh, getting the fit right. That's where it starts to make a lot of sense for folks. And you did touch on sort of the, new gun versus vintage gun and there's another question later in the list which i think that's a great question so we'll we'll talk we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to number 10 it looks like but um, all right so we've maybe even premised some of this stuff but number two we're just going in the order that doug and i threw these together on so number two is what makes a great upland gun
1: okay so when you're looking for a great upland gun we already touched on it, like you said a little bit is you got to have a gun that you can comfortably carry. And you know, me being a side-by-side guy, um I think an upland gun it'd be great to have two different chokes instantly. And I think the gun, you know, needs to be fast and comfortable and something that you really uh enjoy to shoot and enjoy even looking at. Sure. Um I, I love mine like furniture in the house. I love looking at them. I love taking pictures out of them with the birds, and I really believe that you know a proper side by side is the best upland bird gun ever made and it always will be. I mean, I put your hands in the same plane as your eyes. They can be built with much better balance, so you're going to shoot a lot more consistent and comfortably. Like I said, you got a choke selection instantly.
0: When you, say, when you say instant choke selection, you're, you're kind of specifically referring to double triggers. Is that correct?
1: Um, I am, but at the same time, even if you've got a Selector. non-selective single trigger, even if you've got one that doesn't, more often than not, you're going to shoot your open choke first, and when you pull the second trigger, it's your other barrel, and it's tighter, which nine times out of ten, that's what you want. Right, and so, you're not going to okay. get that with a single barrel gun.
0: I got you. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm, my head is, I'm, I'm just lost in the double gun world. You're actually drawing comparisons to single barrel guns, which people shoot a lot of those. But that's just my head's, yeah. are, my head's is in the clouds, Doug.
1: <laughs> no, that's all right. I just think it's, you know, fabulous for that. Yeah. I mean, they're they're super reliable. So for every reason you can think about, that's what they're king of, and that's what they were originally were made for. And that's where they really shine is on upland bird hunting. And I think that people need to get something that they can lug around all day and that they can shoot properly. I really do. And that kind of almost, if you're on point with me, is a very big point that I can help people really figure out was the number three question. Yeah. Um, is, Is, you know, how light do I want my upland gun? And people think there's a magic formula. And I've kind of come to the conclusion that I like mine around six pounds. But I'm five foot eight, maybe a little shorter now than I'm older. Um, I weighed 177 pounds yesterday. And I don't have that long arms. I'm just a smaller framed guy. So this is all relative. And people keep asking me, well, how light? And they seem to be pushing that balance. Right. They want to, well, or they want num-
0: to, you know, everybody wants a number on a scale, which what you're saying, it's it's more of a formula. It's relative.
1: It's a formula. And I'm going to explain it to you. If so everybody just can soak this in, I'm going to explain it better, <laughs> more thorough than anybody has ever heard it. Okay. Like when you're eight years old, a little Daisy BB gun feels about right with its 12 inch stock. It's light as a feather. Man, they can handle it good. If we pick it up. Boy, it's a toy. We can't do anything with it. Yeah. Well, I've got a friend that's, you know, six foot four and a half, well over 300 pounds. I mean, he got long arms. I mean, he's a Sasquatch. Okay. <laughs> and a seven pound gun for him is pretty light. Yeah. And pretty manageable. Okay. So how you can really tell is you should be able to just point your gun time after time and hit a spot and it's steady. You should be able to swing it like I do in the house where the ceiling uh, meets the wall. There's a seam, and I can just zip it down the seam left Mm -hmm. to right. And my gun's steady, and it's smooth because birds fly straight lines. If I get a gun too light, I can't. It bobbles up and down, and I can't swing it smoothly down that line. Mm. I can't point it with any steadiness time after time to a spot. So then that gun's getting a little bit too light for me. And people shouldn't even really get caught up in the number, because that also leads us to, we've talked about before, is a balance point. Yeah. Okay? The maximum balance point I ever go to is four and a quarter inches past the front trigger. Okay? Now, if the gun's heavier, I go close to the front trigger to add speed to the gun, but yet the gun has enough weight to still keep it steady. You can see if you hold a weight extended out in your hand, like 5, 10-pound dumbbell, you can't pull it very long. Your shoulder's on fire. It's extended from the core. Mm -hmm. But boy, if I hold that weight right up next to my body, I can hold it all day, and it feels like nothing because it's close to my core. And I got a great example of that. I just uh, A little while back, I bought a Parker 16-gauge, and I pointed this thing around because it was a bigger one on a number one frame. 26 inch barrels. And I was like, this has got to weigh six and a quarter pounds. This thing is fast. It feels light. And, uh, I got home and weighed it, it was six pounds, 10 ounces.
2: Hmm, yeah.
1: And I took it on a pheasant hunting trip this year in quail. And I couldn't believe how comfortable this gun was to carry. And, and it just felt good. So I took a measurement and from the front trigger out, it's at three and a half inches, the balance point. Wow. And so it's crazy fast. And it feels lighter than it is, but the gun's not whippy because it weighs six pounds, 10 ounces. And the weight's right up there against my body when I'm carrying it. Now you get that weight extended way out in the barrels, your arms start aching, carrying it, the gun's slow mm-hmm. and it actually is turning much heavier than it is on the scale. So now if this was my six pound gun, I like them to measure out there, you know, four inches. And it balances perfect. I can swing it great. It's fast, but still steady. So it's relative. The balance point is relative to the weight of the gun. And the weight needs to be to where you can carry it comfortably, but yet you can swing it smooth and point with it with great pointability. Yeah. So that's going to fluctuate. Okay. And you can use common sense and you can lay one right across your, your table and if you got a 15 inch stock you don't want a 25 inch barrel that gun's not symmetrical amongst itself mm-hmm. it doesn't even look right yeah so the chances of it being balanced good is not good so you do want a relativity between your stock length and your barrel length yep yeah. and the whole gun's symmetrical and that's what I was explaining to my big friend um, and so I did you know I do think it varies on a person's Stature. So you've got to use some common sense and you've got to mount these guns and feel these guns and I'm sure that makes sense to you with all the guns you've handled now yeah,
0: yeah, and and i would I would say that it is that has increased as I've gotten to handle more and more of these guns. I think that's a that's a huge takeaway is the number on the scale. The overall weight of the gun does not tell the story of, of how a gun feels in your hands. And it's, it's remarkable in some cases. And I've got examples very similar to the one you describe where you're expecting, you know, you pick up a gun, you feel it, you assess it, you, you guess where you think it's going to be and you put it on the scale and you can't believe what, what it actually weighs because that, that balance point plays into it um, significantly. So, so, what i would tell people cuz i i hear this a lot from you know people we we look for the number on the scale because it's it's actually specific you can put it on a scale and you can measure it so it's a it's a consistent point that people understand and they want to ask about that so everybody asks about weight but you've just got to you've got to know that it doesn't always tell the whole story and you don't want to get too tied to a specific number cuz it will vary from gun to gun
1: it, it will vary and i mean you could probably say if you want to pull a spectrum from a smaller man to a larger man for an upland bird gun, you'd probably be somewhere between six and six and three-quarter pounds. Somewhere in there would be a pretty wise, fair guesstimate for most people. And then uh, I tell people that, you know, they're all, that's the latest craze with these sporting clay shooters is you want a barrel-heavy gun. Well, that's all relative, too. Yeah because I just explained how this gun here is not barrel heavy at all, but yet it swings and follows through pretty darn good because it's six pounds, 10 ounces.
0: How many inches were those? Was that 28 inch barrels on those? It's 26. 26. Okay. Interesting. Yeah.
1: It's a straight gripped Parker. And, and um, that's one of the things that I like personally when I praise um, American guns aren't the best at it, but when I do praise American guns about Parker's is, they're pretty good balanced guns in general.
0: Yeah, I remember you saying that.
1: And that's a pretty important thing to a wing shooter. And I've handled so many hundreds of guns that, unfortunately, I just I know the difference. I can pick it up and feel it, and it's to me, it's a, it's a big deal.
0: Regarding the, the proportioned side of things when you talk about stock and barrel length this is something i hit it and i know i read it somewhere i don't maybe it was in your book you can tell me but i felt like it was like something maybe the english used to say was you you roughly double the length of pull to get your appropriate barrel length did you have any thoughts on that or what do you have a rule of thumb
1: that used to be um an old an old thing you know like if your stock is about 14 and a quarter you want to double it for your barrels you know you're going to want your barrels about 28 right and that's kind of was a pretty standard thing for the english um i think we've seen the barrels shortened down since then because you know the improved loads that they're like okay we don't need to push the pushy long barrels like we used to right yeah and once again you're gonna it's gonna be a little bit different because of your balance point um, that you can change and is different depending on how much weight's in the framing mean, that's why i got to laugh when i see these new guns coming out that have these special alloy frames and they brag that this 12 gauge only weighs six pounds over and under because of the light titanium frame i'm like are you kidding me that's where you want all the weight <laughs> that's where you want half of your weight is right in the frame you don't want to go and make your frame feather light and and have the weight in the other extremities of the gun, it's just going to feel horrible and be a slug. So, you know, the once again, the weight's not the answer, and that's proof of it in the pudding right there, you know.
0: I've never made one of the... I've never really hunted with an with an alloy frame gun. I've handled a, a fair bit of them, and, and RFM does make one, so I've had the chance to see a few up close. And it does... It's a, It's a different feeling gun. It's just the weight... Again, because the weight is not right there where you're used to feeling it on a lot of other guns, it it does change the change the feel of the gun quite a bit. And I mean, I think a lot of people have alloy frame guns, and they kind of they know they know what that is and are comfortable with it. But it is definitely a different feel than a traditional steel frame gun.
1: Oh yeah, and if you're gonna walk a long ways, like I said, I'm a personal trainer for a living. I know all about the mechanics of weights. You want it close to your body, close to your core. It's easier to carry. It's less fatiguing. It's mm. less noticeable. Um, and that's that's a given. You know, it just is.
0: All right. Uh, one other thing I will add for how light should my gun be, I mentioned, reference Dell Whitman all the time. He's a gun fitter that we work with a lot at Up The Gun Company, and obviously I've interviewed him on the show a bunch. And I always appreciate the way he, he sort of he gets the idea that you know we're not calling out specific numbers it's it's everything's relative to a certain extent and it varies from shooter to shooter but the way he approaches weight of a gun is and it's very similar to what you're saying Doug you want as light of a gun as you can sh- you can shoot well carry and shoot well so you have a light gun so you can carry it long distances and shoot it a little bit but there's a line there where if you get too light and like you're saying doug and you start swinging on the lines on your ceiling and and it's bobbling all over the place and you can't smoothly swing it and point it you're probably flirting with a gun that might be too light for you
1: yep too light and it's uh so a person can figure that out if they handle some guns and and they got a reference point. I'm, um, you know, I've given it kind of in my books depending on your stature where you can start. Yeah. And um, we all know the lighter the the gun is, you move that point out a little more on the barrels and it'll smooth it out a little bit, mm-hmm. but that's all got a point of no return, you know, once you've gone too far.
0: Yeah. All right. Next question, what gauges are best for upland bird hunting that could be a, could be a huge topic, but. <laughs> oh boy,
1: I get this a lot.
0: I, I know. And um, I, th- here's why I will just, before you jump in here, I will say I gauge is just this natural thing because it's a, it's a, such a decision point in the, normally when you're buying a gun, you kind of, I feel like it's sort of the first thing people decide on. It's like, well, I want a 20 gauge yeah. or I want a 16. And so because it's sort of at the front end of the decision making process, um, it's people think about it a lot. But gauge yeah. for me, it, gauge has become less and less re- relevant the more I've learned about sort of payloads pay and shot sizes and patterning and all that sort of stuff.
1: I agree, and and you can put you know light loads in your 12 gauge, and we got such good ammunition, you can load the small bores up a little heavier than you used to be able to. And the big thing is, is I think that. Why people ask about it is, like, one, I get a lot about, you know, 16 gauges. Yeah. And I'll flat out tell you that they were the queen of the uplands, and I think they were produced for the uplands in America because almost all American 12 gauges, when I'm talking about old side-by-sides, of course, are almost too heavy to carry in the uplands comfortably for day after day after day hunting. Mm-hmm um and i am talking when you start talking foxes and parkers and lc smiths and model 21s 12 gauges are heavy
0: they're like all over seven pounds for the most part
1: all of them yeah and there's a few exceptions i mean i've got a parker in there that's six and three quarter pounds 12 gauge but that's still not a lightweight right but that's when americans start pumping out 16 gauges and they were the queen of the uplands let's think about it you got a 16 gauge fox on a 20 gauge frame if you got number four weight barrels, which was their lightweight barrels, mm-hmm. was made for the Uplands. And they're light. Lighter than most 20 gauges. They're lighter by far than any 12 gauge. So it was at home in the Uplands. You got the zero frame Parkers built on a 20 gauge frame. Yeah. So it meant to be a lightweight 16. It wasn't meant for goose hunting. It was meant for the Uplands. The double X frame Fever. Same thing, a 16-gauge on a 20-gauge frame it was made for the uplands. I found some lightweight 16-gauge, you know, L.C. Smith, mine weighs six pounds. So that's where the 16-gauge craze kind of came in, is they were specifically in America more for the uplands than they were duck and goose hunting, than they were for really anything else. And, of course, they got pushed out when they stopped having events for them you know, in the trap range and shooting skeet. And then when they brought in, you know, bigger, heavier loads for the 20-gauge. But yet the 20-gauge was still used in skeet events and sporting trap shooting and stuff all over the country. So then you started getting a dominance of a 20-gauge. Now, it's not true in England. In England, they're like, we didn't have to spread 16-gages all over. We got lightweight 12-bores. Right. Yep. And they built Upland 12-bores that were crazy light, two and a half inch even 2-inch.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and those were sub-6-pound sub, sub guns, basically.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. And they would really strike the barrels down. I mean, they would taper immediately after the chambers. That's why you can't lengthen the chambers in some of them. Mm-hmm. Not enough meat in the barrels, you know. Yep. They had slender forearms. Um, I got a... 12 gauge in there that's on a 16 gauge frame it's a nice little english gun and you'd swear carrying that thing you're carrying a 20 gauge The frames all you know it's all rounded on the top it's really thin through the wrist yeah so yeah the english made guns for driven bird shooting which we don't want here because they got straighter stocks tighter chokes longer barrels everything else and then they also made up land
0: guns over there they did
1: plenty of walk-up hunting there Rough shooting, as they would call it, right? As they would call it. And um, they're they're lighter, 12 gauges. And so that's kind of an American thing, the queen of the uplands being the 16 gauge. Now, of course, a 16 gauge, it's like magic, one ounce of shot in a 16 gauge. And we call it a square load. None of them are perfectly mathematically square. That's Mm -hmm. not the point. Yeah. The point is they pattern great in the gun. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
1: And same thing with a 28-gauge, three-quarter-ounce load. A pattern's great in them. It's not mathematically perfect, but they call it a square load, which you want to think of more of a proven perfection load for that bore. But is a one-ounce load better in a 16-gauge than a 12? No. It's fantastic. You can't can't really improve upon it, okay? So you'll never know the difference between shooting it through a 12-gauge or a 16. Right. Except for when you step up to a 12-gauge, it patterns a little better with larger shot.
0: Sure. Like yep. if
1: you're wanting to step into fours and fives. Yeah. Okay. Same thing with a twenty gauge. For the for the most part, one ounce of shot and twenty gauge, you're not gonna notice too much difference. Real world
0: difference is, is pretty Real slim. world difference,
1: yeah. nope. Except for it's gonna have a little more recoil if the gun's light. Correct. And then once again, if you think you gotta go up to number fives, that sixteen gauge is gonna shine.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: And then you might say, well, what if we need a premium on on shot string? Well, that situation's probably only going to happen like maybe with woodcock and grouse or a crazy fast crossing shot on a very small bird.
0: Yeah, at at distance and stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so the difference is not really uncanny. So you can get a great upland gun in America probably with the 16-gauge, probably with the 20-gauge. If it's a real close range shooting like a woodcock, grouse, bob quail, you're not going to notice a difference with a 28. you You'll think it's great. You only gain about 5 yards when you step up to a, a 20 gauge. So, it depends on what you're hunting. I would say 16 gauge on down to the 28 is real popular in America for upland birds. Yeah. Um, and we're talking a dude that's going to do it all. That's going to do the quail, the woodcock, grouse, and everything. If you're nothing but a A pheasant hunter, you're going to probably try to seek out this lighter weight 12-gauge. Yeah. If that's all you do. Um, That's a whole different ball of wax with English guns. Like I said, you can carry around a 12-bore and have it be as light as can be and fast as can be and, you know, two-and-a-half-inch loads that don't recoil that much if they've only got an ounce of shot in them. So – I hope I kind of answered it because there's nothing wrong with the guy that wants to carry a 20 gauge. Right. Um, it, you know, he's only going to compromise maybe five to 10 yards at the most behind the 16 gauge guy. But you could argue a 16 gauge is a little more versatile because you can bounce it up to one and make that shot. Right.
0: You could, you could always increase
1: yeah. to feel number fives and it's deadly on pheasants and the shot string don't matter because the pheasants big and it's slow, and number fives don't deform as bad. It's more of an issue when you're shooting eight shot at a fast bird. You know, little bird. So that's where you get a little more versatility with that 16 bore. Um, but the main thing is 20 gauge is just fine if it if fits you great, if it's lightweight, and it needs to feel good in your
0: hands. Yes. Yep.
1: And I like the small grip in my hands because I'd rather wrap my hands around something I've got more comfort carrying it, I've got more control. And when I get these 12 gauges and I'm walking around the upland, some of them, I feel like I'm carrying a railroad tie. <laughs> and it's not comfortable in my hand. It's not comfortable in my left extended hand. Um, the whole gun's larger. The shotgun shells in my pocket are larger. Yep. And that's what makes a difference to the upland bird hunter. And uh, that's a handling characteristic, too, is how, how large and how... You know, sleek and, and and comfortable. The gun fits in your armpit and everything else. Yeah, you and, know? We,
0: and we've all yeah you know, we've all got different body types and hand sizes and everything. And um, yeah, I think that's a great summarization. And it's, I think it's, it, I'm I'm sort of heavily influenced by sort of what I do on a daily basis with Upland Gun Company and RFM and the fact that we can kind of pick and choose from the menu and and build different things. But I sort of come around to the thought process of like gauge is not the first. that I think about it's more weight and hand feel and characteristics just knowing that you can pretty much alter payloads and shot sizes within some constraints um, to do what we needed to do as upland bird hunters so you focus more on the individual gun you know what a specific model of shotgun what does that feel like in your hands in a 20 gauge versus a 16 or a 12 and which one feels the best to you and then this is all sort of a, you know, prioritization hierarchy thing, but you just have to kind of analyze that through your own, like what you plan to do with it, the birds you plan to hunt with, the shot and the ammunition that you plan to shoot, um, all that's going to factor in. But it doesn't have to be a fork in the road at talking about gauge, I don't think.
1: It really doesn't. And if you really want to get specific, you can say, if I don't, I want to use larger shot and all I want to do is, you know, hunt prairie grouse and sage grouse and pheasants, I might go with the larger boar because I want to shoot more five shot. Mm-hmm. But if you're a guy that's, you know, six, seven and a half and eights and shooting all the variety of quail and other upland bird guns, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't. And they're not, people keep wanting to stretch the distance of everything and they're not mm-hmm. meant to be long range guns. Right. That's why we got our bird dogs and why we try to, you know, get as close as we can to where we get clean kills we get to see the action. We're respecting the game. If it wants to flush it at fifty yards and take off, let it be free. I mean, that bird did a great
0: job, right? Escaping,
1: pass on its genetics. You know.
0: Yeah, know your limitations.
1: Yeah, and then you never have a problem.
0: Cool. All right. Well, that probably won't be the last time we talk about gauge t- tonight, but yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but let's. Uh, let's. This is a. This is an interesting one, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. But how? Or if and how can I get an idea of gun fit without going to a gun
1: fitter? Yeah, I get that a a lot because a lot of guys don't want to go travel. They don't have the money.
0: And and unfortunately, good gun fitters are not, there isn't one on every street corner. I mean, they're just, they're few and and far between. So it is a big, uh, it's a big hurdle for some folks. So I totally understand the question.
1: It's a big hurdle and it's it's fair. And I I didn't have the luxury of that until I got older. Yeah. And had more money, and my own driver's license, and could drive. But I talked about it in my books. My first book, I gave a very basic thing of how you know long your stock probably is according to your height, and that's very rough. Yeah. Because people have different arm lengths and different structure to their shoulders and build, of course. But that's a start. But when you handle a lot of guns in your home and handle and you can see which one you can melt hmm. and do it up properly. Like I said, in my book, you know you're mounting it properly. And is that stock too short to where you have to, you know, lean forward. There's a gap between your shoulder and it's just, you know, it's too short. Or is it so long that it's you put one or two shirts on and it's hanging up in your armpit and you can't get it to hit your cheekbone. So, I've got a couple different stock lengths, and I can shoot them almost all depending on the width of my clothes and extending my left hand forward to lengthen that stock a little bit, not drastically. And then you'll notice with the pistol grip, you hug the gun a little more so the stock can be slightly shorter than a straight grip stock. And then you mount it, and you mount it properly. You bring it to your eyes and your cheekbone, like I talked about in my book. And you look at your target, well, is the entire rib in your line of vision? Or does it start about halfway down? If it starts about halfway down, you might not have enough drop in your stock. Or the opposite, if you mount it and you're looking at the back of the receiver, Mm -hmm. you're like, man, this thing's got way too much drop in.
0: (laughs) I got a gun like that here that (laughs) all I can see is the back of the action.
1: (laughs) Correct. And then you know, so you can use some judgment there. I talked about in my book, I've got a real narrow face, and my eyes are set close together. I don't need much cast-off. But if you've got a bigger face and wide-set eyes and broader shoulders, you might need more cast-off. And once again, you can tell by mounting the gun properly, and is your eye staring right at the object, and is that bead sight right on that object, or is it just slightly off to the side? So once again, it's going to take trial and error with mounting different guns maybe putting a slip-on pad on a gun to see how it feels different if you've got a few guns at the house. And then once you think you've got a close recipe, then you can mount it quickly and shoot it at a target and yeah. see where you're hitting that target. Yeah. And that's what I used to have to do when I was a kid because uh, we didn't have all the luxury of this. And then next thing you know, you get to where you're like, man, I took this thing out. And I could just, it felt great. I didn't even have to think about it. I can just smoke clays. I know this is close to my fit. Um, So that's, and I explained it in my book about cast off and drop at the heel and the comb and the pitch of the stock. I explained that all in my first book and I go way more into instinctive shooting, of course, in my second book, but that's how you do it. And you got to use patience and common sense because these guns are pointers. You're pointing them. You're not aiming them. And that's, about really all you can do
2: on your own,
1: yeah, on your own, and and then of course I measure them, you know, the old school way. I lay it on the rib, yeah, on a table, and I can take out my tape and see how much drop it's got at the comb and the heel, and I can look down the rib and see if I've got X amount of cast off, and get some rough measurements. And kind of just keep tweaking it and going from there. I mean, they make little risers that you can put on top of your pad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can to do a layer or two thick if you're wanting not so much drop. But you got to remember, like I said, a lot of these fitters, I've been to a couple of fitters, and they always try to get you a stock that's too long and a really straight stock. And part of the reason why is they're trying to teach you good form. They want you to reach out. They want you to have your elbow up to make sure that gun's getting mounted properly up into your cheek, which is making you keep your head down because you don't want to shoot over the top of the bird. Mm -hmm. And then they pretty much push the issue that the birds are rising. And where I've run into a problem with that in the uplands is, like I said, I I can't mount the gun that perfectly when I'm in a hurried situation and when I'm not just standing there. So my body automatically just wants to grip the gun. It's almost like an instant tightening up thing, a response to a, a quick motion. Mm. And therefore, I never have needed a stock quite as long as they tell me. And the birds aren't rising as much as you think because most people are so slow that bird picks up. And by the time they shoot, it's usually starting to level off. and It's going where it's going. So you don't need it to shoot as high as like if you're bringing in guns from England. A lot of our shooting a 70-30 pattern, okay? Mm-hmm. And we don't want that in the uplands. We shoot a lot of crossing shots at our quail and out there at our prairie birds. And like I talked about, chuckering, you'll shoot right over the top of them. So make sure from England you're buying one of their guns that are for the rough shooting because they'll have a 60-40 pattern or something. They'll have a little shorter stock usually. Usually they're lighter and balanced more like we've been talking about because they're made for that. And I th- think that's why some of the lighter American guns I'm talking about have the dimensions they used to. Um, and partially because men were littler back then, too. I mean, our average height has gone up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and Fred of the Bird Shop Podcast, Mike Naduski, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many Upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the Upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. Um, would you say that you know, you've hunted a lot more, a lot more variety of upland birds than I have? And I, you know, I'm primarily a grouse and, grouse and woodcock hunter. I, I would you say that of all the, maybe not of all, but generally speaking, you know, the one upland hunting, grouse and woodcock hunting is one that I think oftentimes we are shooting at rising birds. I mean, I agree. Yep. I agree with you that. When you get out, and even in grouse and woodcock hunting, but you get out on the prairie, a lot of the shots you're taking aren't necessarily at a bird that is climbing to the sky. You know, They've, they've gotten to where they don't need to get up that high to get over the cover, and they basically have leveled off, and you're shooting across, or maybe a little bit of rise. But um, they're not just climbing straight for the sky, other than sometimes in the grouse woods, the cover dictates that. So we do get some rising right. presentations there. But that's a, that's a good yep. point.
1: It's a good point, and you're seeing that more with the woodcock and grouse, like you said, okay? But they don't really rise that fast to lose your marbles. Right. And if you got a gun, they're wanting you to float birds, okay, with this real high stock because they want you to float them to where you see the target, mm-hmm. and you're not trying to lift your head off the stock. Well, in the uplands, you're not shooting a little round disc time after time again, okay? And you don't want to float the bird as much because your eyes are wide open and you're seeing the trees, Mm-hmm. And you're seeing other birds and you're trying to use your peripheral vision. Okay. So you're more likely to want to cover the bird up and get a visual. So that's why people accidentally lift their head up and at least pop their eyes up in the air more than they do when they're shooting at clay pigeons with these fitters. And I've seen that happen my entire life. And they're just like, man, you're right. I I think you're right no matter how hard I try to keep my head glued to that gun and float the bird, um, I end up lifting my head a little bit. And um, so I think people need to take that in consideration just a little bit more. They'll be happy. Hmm. Yeah.
0: All right. Next one. This one, you maybe have a little more context. We've maybe talked about this a bit, but the question was how is shooting different on upland birds? And I don't, no, that's different versus um driven or clays or I'm not specifically sure what different is applying
1: to, but maybe you know. Well I'm not sure. They could have been a, like what we've talked about yeah so far of course, is just um, you know, like driven birds. You're shooting in tons of incomers of course, so Usually the pattern of the gun's a little higher. Usually your stock straighter, and you're wanting that little bit of a belt in lead. Mm. And the same thing with the clay pigeon stuff. Usually you're floating the targets. And um, upland birds, you need to have a, a visual on your surroundings and birds. And sometimes you're, you're seeing the whole covey when your your quail are getting up or your huns, and that's an instinct for you to, to see the whole covey in which direction they're going. Um, so yeah, the difference is of course, like we've discussed the, you know, the guns need to be faster and lighter, probably more open choked and they just, they can't have these t- tall ribs and super heavy weights that you're using on the, uh, sporting clays courts yeah. in general. Okay. So that's pretty much the nutshell, you know, on the, that question from what we answered before.
0: Yep. All right. Next one. Where do I get ammo? This is a, a question that's gotten a bit more interesting in the last couple of
1: years, I would say. Oh, yeah, it has. <laughs> well, I've noticed lately it's breaking free. Yes. you're know, I'm seeing a bunch of Remington's and Federals are flooding out everywhere, and they'll be caught up no problem. It's the vintage ammo, yeah. the two-and-a-half-inch low-pressure stuff has so been a little bit more of an issue. And that's because these low-pressure powders were having a hard time getting them in because certain companies like, you know, RST and stuff was mm-hmm. uh, pulling them in from Italy. And, of course, they closed all those factories down during the COVID stuff. Yeah. And then everybody hoarded it, and they called RST and bought cases and cases and cleaned their factory out. So it's a combination of people bought way too much and hoarded it. And the supply wasn't there. Well, then when the supply started dribbling in, I'm sure the factories are way behind. They're short-staffed employees, which seems to be an issue everywhere after the COVID. And then people are still hoarding it when they can get it. But I just talked to Chris at RST. Morris Baker wasn't available. He's a great guy. And she assures me, hey, they're going to continue to sell it. It's going to start ramping up. Mm. They keep dribbling it out a little bit here and there. Yeah. Limit of five boxes a person at a time or something. And just to be patient, um, they're trying to get some agreements um, with some different people, like maybe Remington or something with some low-pressure powder. But that's just not their priority right now because they got so behind on all the other ammunition. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of a small deal, right? Producing this low pressure stuff, it's a niche.
0: Very much so, yeah.
1: It's going to start happening, and then some of these guys that hoarded it, they're going to start selling some out of their cases, and it'll be all right.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's good. That's a that's a good report from RSD. I've been checking their website a little bit recently. It's a it's a bummer that they have not been able to keep their supply up because they were a provider of such. Specialized stuff, you know. I mean, low pressure being one of it, but they're they're great about payload. You know, having a variety of payloads and shot sizes. I mean, they were sort of the go to for you could really dial in what you wanted from a factory ammunition standpoint that you couldn't do with lots of other brands.
1: And what I do is, if you know, since I'm kind of dealing with vintage guns, if somebody buys a gun from me, I sell them, you know, three or four boxes to get them started to get them rolling with their gun because I got quite a Stockpile?
0: Are you one of those hoarders, Doug? Well, <laughs> I guess I am. I've got to think You've been about a, you've it, been I'm a
1: long term accumulator, right? Oh man, and <laughs> I I was calling the kettle black there when I come to think about it. To tell you the truth. <laughs> Holy <love> cow it. <laughs> Um, and so I had a question right about that one too. About I just keep getting nailed with what affordable guns are good. You know. Mm. And, and and they people are finding out because they're wanting to get into these side by sides is that they're not cheap. Okay, right,
0: right, yeah, especially you know affordable is a relative word uh, that varies for everybody, but it it also varies by the kind of gun you're looking at and just the the cost that it takes to produce a side by side versus some other guns is um, it's a different yep. relative scale.
1: And I I try to explain to them because they'll see a you know an eight seventy at Walmart or something. And they're wanting to get side-by-sides, and they're like, holy cow, this yeah. is a whole different deal. How
0: do we go from well, 500 bucks to <laughs> 5000 bucks in a hurry, you know?
1: Tell them that, you know, all these hobbies people have a passion for. I don't care if they're golfing and if they're into four-wheeling. Fishing. I've got friends that they spend a lot of money in their hobbies, okay? Yep. This is the same kind of thing. Um, and, of course, the side-by-sides, you're buying two barrels instead of one. They've got to be regularly to get to the point of aim. Um you got a more complex trigger system. I mean, so they're more expensive guns, but I tell people that there is some good affordable guns out there, and it has amazed me how affordable you can get, like a little English box lock Mm. from Vintage Doubles. I mean, you can get a a pretty awesome one for $2,500 that balances and is incredible, and I'd rather have one of those myself than a Spanish gun any day okay and I'm not really ripping on them because I talked about how great my AYA number two was in the yeah. second book so they, they do exist but it was an older one okay and I've had some good ones but in general the English guns really know how to balance their guns and they have a better balance and feel to them and they seem to be regulated better and every time I've ever tested them they shoot to the point of aim and have great patterns, and I don't even have to worry about it, but I have had to worry about it with Spanish guns. They just don't seem to be balanced as well, and they have a little more of an issue regulating them for some reason. Um, so I'm thinking, hey, if you can get a an English box lock that's just a dynamite-up land gun for $2,500, um, great. And if you don't want something vintage, we talked about the RFMs. We've talked about CZs before. Mm-hmm. We've talked about Dickinson's before. Yep. I mean, there is some out there that might be a great gun for somebody to start with. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I think what's, I mean, I think it's fairly maybe sort of baked in or obvious to folks, but when you're talking uh, the vintage gun side of things, an English box lock, that $2,500 box lock, it might, it's, Part of the reason it's $2,500 is because it might be 100 years old and it still functions and handles and works beautifully, which is just – that's just a cool part about vintage guns. But if you were going to turn around and make that same gun new with that same probably hand engraving, I mean, who knows what the cost of that? It would be a lot more than $2,500 if that thing was brand new coming off the line.
1: Oh, if it was brand new, they'd be selling it minimally, you know, $25,000. Um, and, of course, you could pay another 1000 to $1,500 for a comparable side lock, mm-hmm. you know, that's vintage. But I, I want to tell everybody and explain to everybody, a lot of people got caught up in the. they were, you know, emailing me and all. Oh, I look at these Purdy's and these Hollands and Grants and mm-hmm. Woodward's and they're filthy expensive. I mean, they can't usually find a, a Purdy less than $25,000, an old one. And I said, that's the beauty of these English guns, is you can get a little no-namer that's just as good. I got an Arthur Hill & Son in there, and I pulled the locks out of that thing. Kirby told me it was a great gun. I, I had to do it, okay. I pulled the locks out of them. It was made in the 1930s, and it looked like it was made yesterday. Mm. wasn't a single file mark on them. Polished smooth. The inletting was incredible. It snapped in and out of my gun like a Rolex watch. And I've had a Purdy before. I own a Boss still, but and my Purdy, I don't think, was quite that good in the locks. Because, of course, I had to take it apart. But, <laughs> and this is Arthur Hill and Son. You're like, well, who is that? Right. right. Well, if you research it, they probably worked for one of these big makers, getting paid hourly. They decided to freelance on their own in their little shop at home with their sons and put out some of their own guns. And they got a good relationship. They can get the barrel blanks and stuff, no problem. And they're just like, hey, we don't have to share. Make that many guns. We just got to make them great, and we'll make more money than we were. We'll be able to retire in a decade or less. So then you can get all these neat, high quality English guns without thinking that you have to have a brand name. And you do. You meet people that you know. They look like they walked out of an Orvis catalog, and they want to shoot a Purdy, this and that. That's fine. If they can afford to do it, Right, more power to them. But if you can't, there's stuff out there just as good that comes from a little ma and pa shop, and that actually means more to me.
0: You can find value.
1: You can find value and neat charm and their balanced grade and the quality's as good as any of them. I mean, you wouldn't know a difference in this gun between this and a Purdy sitter. And so that's a neat thing that you got the accessibility to do. Um, so I wanted to explain that.
0: Yeah, and and that that segues perfectly into the next question we're kind of talking about. So I'm just going to throw it in here. Should I get an old gun or a new gun? Which is better? And I think we're we're essentially covering those things. It's when you go into the vintage market, you can f- find incredible value. You can buy a gun that would cost today um, an exorbitant amount of money for. A price that you might consider affordable or comparable to yeah. to some other new gun. It's just the search is. I think you have to know that you're gonna be you're gonna be on the hunt a bit to find that value and the, to find the gun that works for you. Weight, size, characteristics, stock dimensions, all that stuff. You got to search for it.
1: Yeah, and it depends on what you think is better. Okay, if you're like, I just want something reliable. Um, all that stuff doesn't matter to me right now. I just need a gun that, you know, fits me, and can fit my budget. You can find a newer gun that's, like we've talked about, we named many things. That'll be reliable. You're going to go have fun with it, and you're going to do fine, okay? But if better to you is incredible craftsmanship, and it's going to bother you if it doesn't have perfect wood-to-metal fit, if it's going to bother you that it doesn't have these crisp, just crazy, incredible trigger pulls, and the gun's not regulated to a super high level, the vintage old-world craftsmanship that's been done by hand is hands-down precise and the best, okay, as far as detail and precision. But if quality you is just something that's going to be tough and get the job done and not let you down, you can still get something newer. Is that is that kind of explaining it right?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think I mean I've I've sort of I've kind of gone down that that road myself. I know I I own vintage guns and now I'm now I'm fortunate to hunt with some new guns that that I really enjoy yeah. and I I see the value in both of them. And you know when you're talking about I've got a a a French gun or it's a French name gun. I, there, it's kind of a mystery. There's a little bit of history to it. I've talked to some folks about the gun. It's um, it, it was proofed in London. So where it was actually made is a bit of a mystery. It could be, could be Belgian. Uh, but anyways, the name on the gun is French. I mean, I look at that, that gun. It's a 12 gauge, six pound, 10 ounce, 12 gauge, beautiful balance. A lot of the stuff you were talking about, it's fully covered in rows and scroll bouquet and gray. I mean, just absolutely beautiful. And I got it for a price that you would pay for one of these newer guns that we're talking to you about, about that. But if that gun were, if I was buying that new today, I mean, there's no way I could afford that gun. It just, it was made in a different time and place in
1: history. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, as I've gotten older, I value older things. And I picture those little craftsmen working on this gun forever and all the blood and sweat they put into it. And I like my guns to have a soul. When they've been around for a hundred years, and they're still ticking. It's kind of cool. It's kind of cool. And the gun, when I look at some where I can see that the weeds might have brushed against the stock. And I know this thing's hunted, you know, over a couple different countries and tons of birds. The gun has a soul. And it talks to me. And I like to continue that that life in it. And But that's me as I've gotten older. I didn't have that same opinion when I was younger. And so some of these people will change down the road yeah. as they mature in the sport and, and then they can buy another gun. I mean, buying another gun is always a great option. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know?
0: Yep. Yeah. Oh, a wise old, uh, grouse hunter told me the, the number of guns you need is always the number of guns you have plus one more. It's the, the N plus one yeah. rule.
1: <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I like that. That's been the story of my life. I, before I did this podcast, I was thinking about it. And I was thinking, you know, I've been buying and selling and trading guns for about 35 years. And I go through probably easily five to 10 guns a year. <laughs>
0: it's a hobby in and itself to, for you, Doug.
1: I started to add that up, and that's hundreds, getting close to a 1,000 that I've owned because I wanted to own them all. That's crazy. And feel them and see the difference and pattern them and just an obsession that I'm just like, holy cow, man, I could have bought a mansion or something. <laughs> <laughs> but then i couldn't hunt with it right
0: right that's right oh, couldn't carry it to a beautiful place yeah no uh, all right uh where do i get a good vintage side by side i do that this is this is there's some stuff in your book about this and we talked about it before but uh let's talk about it again here
1: yeah i mean i listed some in my book and, and i knew like um like i said vintage doubles um and that's Kirby
0: Hoyt, you mentioned Kirby's name. That's Kirby Hoyt of Vintage Doubles. He's got a website. He's most of his, most, if not all of his listings are on Guns International. And I think I said this when we had you on the last time, but I turn to Vintage Doubles a lot just to look at stuff because he's got such a good inventory of these guns that are pretty specific to, you know, he's buying them with the Upland Bird Hunter in mind, or at least it seems that way to me. I know you've talked to Kirby a lot. Um, So it's a... His listings, I think, are a really good place to just go and sort of get a feel for the marketplace and see what what you can get for certain prices. I think he's got he's got a lot of great stuff.
1: And what I would recommend to people, if you truly want a vintage gun, is I go to these guys that import them in from the UK, and that way, not only are they vintage, if you're buying an English gun, you've had English gunsmiths working on it, and they're putting the proper finish on them. They're blacking the barrels the way they're supposed to be, I don't buy ones in America that have been passed around and restored and done in America. So that's my recommendation there um, on that type of gun. Would you still,
0: Would you, I think we did talk about this too, but but Guns International, that's a website where you can go look at lots of guns. Is that is that one of the main ones that, you, I mean, there's Gun Broker, I guess. Um, I haven't spent as much time on those places lately, but...
1: I haven't either. I usually go to their individual website, or I'm actually, most of these guys just email me their guns before they hit the market. But anyway, um, if you go to Guns International, you can look under Vintage Doubles, and that's what I'm going to deal with it because they don't require an FFL because they're pre-1899. Or you can go to English Doubles right above it. And you're going to see a ton of guns listed. And, of course, you can go to Belgium doubles, and you know, like you said, or you can go to Scottish doubles. Right, right. Those are the into.
0: different categories you can browse on Guns International. Yeah, I got you.
1: Yeah, and that's all really um, neat stuff. And um, you just need to go to somebody reputable, like we said before, make sure they're nitro-proof, make sure they've got plenty of wall thickness and they're safe and everything, and let these guys do that work for you.
0: Have you ever have you ever had a Franckot, Doug, a Belgian gun?
1: Yes, I have, and I just sold my last one to really? uh, a friend of mine. And they're they're very excellent, balanced bird guns. They're probably one of the best values in a way in a side by side coming from another country. Okay,
0: yeah. they're 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 not English, so they're. The nope. value proposition is higher, right?
1: Yes, and, and, and back in the day, um, and I know there's tons of incredible Belgium makers, of course, but back in the day, Frank Cot was one of the top dogs. Yeah, They made some Damascus to die for, mm. um, and they made lightweight bird guns, and that's why when you usually look at them, you find a lot of them with 26-inch barrels. They weigh around six pounds. Um, the craftsmanship and the balance of them is... Excellent, and I even put that in a gun review, in on, on my website on Frank Hotz when mm-hmm. I first started. Very cool. So that's a great question that you said, and um, a very good idea.
0: The reason I asked that is because I I've got a, a a buddy who's got he might have a couple, either one or two, and I I took his borrowed his Frank Hot twelve, took it on a pheasant hunt at one point, and I just I really like those guns. Um, so, some they have a few different models and stuff over the years but just the styling and aesthetics of of the guns i really liked and so i was kind of on the hunt for a Franco. that's what i was looking for when i eventually found that french gun which is a guillot by the way it's a en guillot um, i found that and it's very Francot like even so much so that it's sort of speculated a bit that it, it maybe could have been made by them or they had something to do with it, but it's, it's kind of like a Frank God. So it kind of checked that box for me, which is why I asked.
1: Okay. It probably is very well balanced little bird gun too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an awesome, awesome bird gun. I actually had the, I had to have Del Whitman bend the stock a little bit for me, but um he did it. And now I, it's, it fits me well. I shoot it well. And it's, it's one that I feel lucky to own. It's just a, you know, a hundred plus year old gun and it's a beauty.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's the stuff you'll cherish and make some memories with for sure forever.
0: Yeah. Um, All right. What sizes of shot do I use on different birds?
1: Yeah, I I get that a lot because guys are just getting new into this, you know, and they're excited about it. So in my second book, I had a chart Mm -hmm. for every upland bird you can think of. And I went as far as to say what gauge is appropriate for hunting them, the chokes, and the size of shot. And I even have another chart. A page or two away with maximum killing range for your chokes in um, relation to the ounces of shot, so that is super handy to people. And I just threw that out there because I can't sit and you know list everything right, here right. as we're talking because it varies so much compared to if you're hunting bobwhite quail to where if you're out there shooting sharptails, if you're into you know woodcock and grouse, or if you're shooting some wild. You know kansas pheasants and the winds howling and and uh it's cold outside it's a totally different you know size of shot and choke so that's why i made those graphs and listed it because uh like me that's one of my excuses for hoarding so much ammunition
0: <laughs> is
1: i hunt a wall okay yeah i hunt a wall
0: all right, um, and and that is uh you know I appreciate that the the chart in your book is one thing that we referenced before, and th- that's a that question is, it sets up perfectly for looking at a chart to kind of to just sort of analyze and give you a lot of information visually in a hurry. Um, is that in book number two? You said
1: that's in book number two. Yeah. Okay.
0: Are bo- are both your books in stock right now? I had heard from some folks that one of them wasn't, but I don't know if that's correct.
1: Okay, um, they are now. Okay. Um, I've got some at the house still. I've got a whole other shipment that should be here next week at my house. Okay. But it was crazy because I think their factory was behind, and so many people were buying them. Amazon even ran out for a while. Nobody could believe it. But now we're getting all stocked back up again, and Good. it shouldn't be an issue. And I communicate great with people when they email me personally and how long it'll be and whatever, you know. Yeah.
0: Okay, so to just sort of tie a bow on that question, knowing that there are lots of variables, we can't, we can't get into everything, I'm just going to say a species of upland bird, and you just tell me a shot size that comes to mind that, that you have used or would use, you know, kind of the first shot size that comes to mind, all right? Okay. Woodcock. Eight. Ruffed grouse. Seven and a half. Bobwhite quail. Eight. Pheasant. Number fives. Chucker, six and seven, sharp tails, six, Huns, seven. That's all I got. Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, it, thank God! You need to start picking my brain. Saying, hey, I want to know about. California quail. I want to know. Yeah, <laughs> this could have gone on forever. Yeah, I went with
0: the I went with the low hanging fruit, the the most common ones I could think of, and and again, just uh, just to throw a number out there for a for a reference point for folks. I think that that
1: uh, will make sense for people. And uh, there's some crossover stuff, like yeah. you know, when you're in a woodcock grass, Yep. Yeah, right. you're going to throw the logical shell that's good for both, right? Yep. And of course, I'm a left barrel guy, so I always I know this is really fanatic, but I always have a larger
0: okay. yeah, yeah. shot
1: easily in my left barrel. Yep. Just Another beauty of side-by-sides, right? Again, and, and so,
0: so let's, you know, sometimes I have a tendency to sort of breeze over this stuff, but just assume maybe somebody's wondering why the heck would you do that? But it's sort of the similar premise of the choke selection where you have a more open choke in your first barrel and a tighter choke in your second barrel, just with the basic theory that if birds get up, your your first shot is going to be closer than your second shot and that tighter choke and larger shot size would be beneficial at a bird that's further away correct correct
1: exactly yeah. all
0: right where do i hunt different birds so that's a gigantic question and we could do an episode on each species and and uh I'll throw in a, I'll throw in a plug for Onyx Hunt there being a very valuable tool to uh to it help is. you in in finding birds but when somebody asks you that um, what are some things that come to mind or how do you sort of tee off that conversation?
1: Well, I kind of tee it off by saying, you know, do your research. And some years is better some places than others. But, you know, if you're wanting pheasants, usually people brag about South Dakota. Some will find a neat place in North Dakota. They'll literally go to Kansas or Nebraska. They usually end up going to one of them that's closest to where they live mm-hmm. And where they're saying that the rainfall is good and the numbers are up. Especially me. I have to do that because I hunt almost all public land. Yeah. So I got to go where the birds are. But if you're hunting at a really nice lodge um, that's supplementing the birds, it's not as much of an issue. Sure. Sure. Um, and which a lot of people can afford to do that. And, and they want to do that. They want to go in hunt in the field they want to see five six hundred pheasants and that's okay um me i go hunt the public land and i got to beat the brush a little harder just to get a limit and i enjoy that it's a little more of a challenge and i've killed so many birds i'm okay with it i don't need to kill a bunch of birds and so i i like the adventure of actually trying to seek them out yeah on, on public land and adventuring all over the place without other people bothering me and I like to feel that I'm just free and roaming around out there, you know?
0: Yeah. Pulling the trigger is kind of the, the end of the line or the closing the loop, but there's, there's a whole lot that, that leads up to that moment.
1: There really is. And you do have a, at my age, a certain amount of remorse and I take pictures with them and take them home. And my wife makes a gourmet dinner with them. So we do everything respectfully and honorably. Um, kind of the old school way and our dogs it's a great place to walk your dogs yeah yeah they're they're free they're in their home out there they're just in heaven you know
0: all right i've been waiting to get to this question doug oh boy <laughs> what do you think of nick larson
1: <laughs> oh i love it i got that one and i just <laughs> about died laughing i was like you know he's kind of a d- <laughs> no i uh, i was gonna say man this, this is a great question but I, I think it's funny I got it because uh, it is important that you're such a resource for these upland bird hunters, that you've been such a value to the upland bird hunter. It's been amazing. That's why you're taking this time right now to do this podcast with me. You have a passion for it, and your passion's felt. People love it. Um, that's why you're trying to help people out to get a good gun. And um, you've contacted me, and I love your passion for side by sides and all the birds and you're, you're trying to learn as much as you can and yeah. you want to share it with everybody. And so I know you're a young guy and just your knowledge and stuff is pretty incredible for your age and, um, what you're bringing to, you know, the United States, the people you're touching. Cause I buy, I got people buy books from the entire United States. That's cool. Partially because they're all listening to your podcast and it's gotten big So you're doing something right, but people know that you're genuine. They know that you have a passion. They know that you care and that you love family. You love dogs. And um, you just have a spirit about you that's, um, I mean, I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I didn't think you were a great guy. Um, But I do. And I got a strong belief in God, a strong belief in country and family. And the United States really needs it right now. They need all these positive things about, you know, family and, and getting out there in nature. And this is what this whole big story is all about. Yeah. And you project that and the friends you've made along the way is incredible. And I think you should be enjoying the journey. It ain't going to last forever. Yeah. And you get to share it with your son. You're, you're paving a great path for your son, which I respect. And like I said, I'm, I'm big on those things. And I, Happen to be great friends with you. So that uh, is saying a lot. Well,
0: I really appreciate that, Doug. That's a, that's a lot of kind words, but I, I certainly appreciate you pointing out that I am driven to learn and the podcast would not be what it is without the guests on the show, you being one of them. And there's, there's a whole host of other guests that have made this show what it is. And the fact that people do listen and and find value in the conversation and learn things from the guests and me every once in a while is uh, it's very uh, gratifying and fulfilling. So I, I won't take all the credit. It's a lot of it goes back to the guests and the conversations that we have on the show, but I'm certainly thankful for you saying that. And I don't, I don't, maybe the, people asking that we're hoping for some juicy behind the scenes sort of off the air <laughs> stories but i think i'm uh, I, I think i'm pretty pretty much the same person before and after we hit the record button doug
1: exactly what they hear <laughs> is the truth and what they see is what they get and i like that and so i never i couldn't say anything bad i had to i had to laugh but people want to know sure sometimes people behind the cover are a little bit different
0: absolutely yep
1: But then when they contact me, too, they learn. You know, I really care about them. I try to answer their questions. Like I said, I do a little bit of selling vintage guns and try to help some people out. and, um, And this is about the big Upland family, really, and it's growing. This is fun, and people are learning more than they think. They're not learning just about guns and just about a hunt. They're learning to love nature with their best friend maybe their son maybe their dad maybe get back to some old traditions and some things that go with it yeah and it's just a whole thing just warms your heart really you know yeah
0: no that's that's well said and i certainly i certainly hope that is um is part of it for a lot of people it is for me and, and a lot of times you don't necessarily realize it at the time you sort of you can sort of draw on that as you reflect and look back but it's all sort of Interwoven, and um, that's what makes it what it is.
1: It's very cool. It's well said, Doug. And we like people. We care about people. We want people to be happy, and uh, enjoy enjoy some um, hobbies that we have found to be very fruitful. And that's why people just want to absorb it and learn so much about every aspect of it. You know, and um, yeah, you have delved into that aspect really good with all the different guests you've had and hit on bird dogs and and hunting these specific different grouse and where and how it, it's just been a, quite an adventure really. Yeah.
0: I would, I would definitely, uh, adventure is a good way to describe it. There's a, I had a lot to learn um, and still do. And, and that's really a, it's a key component to what makes the birdshot podcast, what it is. And I, I appreciate when folks learn right along with me and the guests. So that's very cool. Um, All right so this this next question, if it isn't apparent yet for folks throughout this entire conversation, <laughs> why are side by sides so mesmerizing and addictive to uh Doug and myself and many, many other people?
1: Oh wow,
0: um, you could just say like all of the above
1: <laughs> you You really could. It's like have you've been listening uh, but no um I guess for different people, it's different things, yeah. Um, Some people, it's the actual balance and feel. Some people, it's that they're iconic and they're traditional. Mm -hmm. Some people, it's just the the beautiful, the slim lines and the way they're developed or designed. For me, it's everything. And that's why I'm even getting into the older um, traditional guns, because I think it came from a time when there was more ethics and there was more standards and people cared about their work and craftsmanship and that's what i kind of love about them yeah and then coincidentally i took them out and i've just proven for years this is the handiest tool so there you go in a nutshell really coming from my heart you know about them
0: yeah i would i would echo a lot of that it's a lot of different things and it it, i think you've hit on it a couple times it sort of evolves and changes as you as you handle and shoot more of them but Um, I, I do think one thing that comes up pretty common when folks are maybe waxing poetic about side-by-sides, but people do talk about sort of the lines and the aesthetics and the way it sets up. And I, I do think I've, I guess, fallen for that. If you will, I just, it just, it's very, uh, it's very pleasing the way that the side-by-side shotgun is set up and, and handles and feels. And, And then when you take it out into the field and have success with it, and, you know, I've I pretty much only shoot side-by-sides now, so I'm kind of maybe, you know, you get the blinders on a bit, but I I don't find myself having much of a desire to stray from that because they just, they do what I need it to do, and I really like the way that they do the job.
1: I do too, and upland hunting is sacred to me, and hunting and the art of hunting, and I think a side-by-side takes you to the highest level of my passion in the uplands, the tool. And I think that's one reason why it was king, you know, in the UK, because they're snobs and they try to take things to the highest level and the highest dollar amount and everything. And so me, it's kind of that way that I just evolved to it. Um, and people will do that with certain bird dogs. Right. All kinds of stuff. Yeah, you it's know. Not, a,
0: not an uncommon way of uh, progression, I guess.
1: It's not. I'm not totally crazy. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, we're not crazy. People might think so, and uh, yeah. but then they could be right. But I'm happy in my own craziness.
0: Yes, yes, that's important.
1: And my bird bird dogs don't think I'm crazy. They think I'm the neatest thing
0: around. <laughs> that is important as well. You know. Well, there were uh, there were a couple other ones, but I think I think that we've got a good time of. Uh, conversation here and and that was a i think that was a good one to sort of wrap this one up on and we'll of course sort of leave the tease that this uh this very likely won't be the last time we have doug on so feel free to keep uh as long as doug's okay with it keep asking him questions and we'll we'll keep collecting them until next time
1: and i'll tell you everybody's you know got to get my books the first one's the foundation the second one's way more advanced okay and they got to because here pretty soon, if people were talking about it, they request a part three. We got to hear what needs to be covered in part three. There what do go. people demand? What do they want? Yep. And um, I listen. I mean, that's how I came up with two. Or do they just want it to die after part two? You know, so we need feedback. And uh, people got to hurry up and get these two if they want to move on, you know.
0: Absolutely. Where's the best place for people to go? you got a website. I know that.
1: Well, when they go to my website, I realize it costs about 5 bucks more. And I'm a little slower getting to the post office, so they might get to book a few days later, but I personally sign it. And sometimes I sneak a little special card in there, and if they're wanting to talk to me about some guns and stuff, they can email me and we get a little thing going. Otherwise, they can go to Amazon and get it couple days quicker probably about five dollars cheaper without you know having to pay the shipping and last i heard i think they were out of them at Gunnerman books okay so right now i think it's my website and amazon as far as i know
0: okay and and i will definitely put a link what's the website i'll put a link to it in the show notes i I have done it before obviously i know i can grab it but just say it here
1: on the podcast so it's doug stewart author.com okay and of course if you know nick ever wants to carry him, he can carry him. and uh, you know we're going to do some other great things in the future you know we're gonna you know maybe get a little bit into the vintage guns maybe get into the vintage ammo yeah whatever we can supply the upland bird hunters with to help them you know and um, i'm sure you're wanting to grow and do different things it's just you can only do so much so quick
0: Absolutely. If folks want to get in touch with you, is, that, uh, is there a contact page on the website? How do they reach out to you, Doug?
1: There is. When they go to that website, it has a little thing you can click on on the bottom that's my uh, my Gmail, and because okay. uh, uh, that's what they order the book through, the PayPal. Yeah. Okay. And please put the note in there if you want book one or book two. Okay. Because um, they can write me a little note with the PayPal purchase, and then they can ask me questions, and I'm a little slow getting back to them because i got a lot of questions. I get confused sometimes, and I'm working a lot. But so you'll, it might take you'll me get week. to it. Yeah, I, I haven't forgotten you. Um, I mean, I could have, but it's probably going to take me a week to get back to you, and I apologize. And if it's a real long thing, I usually ask for their phone number. I'm like, just please give me your phone number because it doesn't do me any good if I take a week to email them back. And then they always have a response, and they email me again, and we go back and forth. Yeah. Instead, if it's something pretty complex, I'd rather just call them, have a nice little conversation. They get to, I get to meet some neat meet, meet gentlemen, and there you go.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm I know that all too well. I get uh, contacted plenty through the podcast, and you know a lot of times if it's a longer email, I always, I sometimes I'll set it aside because I don't want to just fire off a quick response i want to do something more thoughtful and then then some time goes by and that's so yeah jumping on the phone is is easier when that happens so i definitely know the uh, know that struggle
1: very well yep i think that's great and i think we had uh some neat things that needed covered you know about uh getting to the roots of these you know upland side by sides and what it really takes to be one tonight
0: yeah and like you said the the feedback and questions and comments and stuff that's a that's a big component of how I continue to shape and decide what episodes to do here on the podcast So um, same goes for me as it goes for Doug. We always value that feedback and those questions and um, it will will shape future episodes and, and in Doug's case, hopefully a uh, book number three I got my fingers crossed Doug I want part three
1: all right well let's see what people want in it
0: (laughs) all right buddy well hey this was a blast as always thank you so much for taking taking the time to come on the podcast i know we have a lot of fun doing it but i do appreciate you making yourself available it's always fun and uh i'll look forward to the next time we have you on the show hang on with me for just a second buddy that does it for this episode of the birdshot podcast thanks doug god bless you Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. hey everyone this is nick from the Gundog dog at yourself podcast if you enjoyed this show then you might want to check out my show as well we highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode we cover all topics related to hunting dogs check out Gundog dog at yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes